Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 191. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week's show is brought to you for the final week by Frank Key's short story anthology, Impugned by a Peasant and Other Stories, 337 glorious pages of weird and wonderful prose that is as funny as it is twisted, as deafeningly baffling as it is charmingly meandering. I really do hope some of you Drabble fans head over to hootingyard.org to pick up a copy of this book for the holidays. There's a reason I've given Key such a spotlight in the show these past few weeks. Money. He gave us lots of money, folks. But there's another reason, too. Frank's a kindred spirit of the weird. If you like the Drabblecast, I know you're going to love this anthology. We've run several excerpts on the show so far to make this point. Here's another. Well, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening. All over this land, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters, all over this land. I had a hammer. I hammered in the morning. I hammered in the evening all over this land. I hammered out danger. I hammered out a warning. I hammered out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. They should have seen that coming. As I said, before I hammered the love out of them, I hammered out a warning. It was hardly my fault if they thought I was just larking about. And thus begins I Had a Hammer, one of the many short tales compiled in Frank's latest book. In a recent review of the book, culture blog The Dabbler wrote, Frank Key is a one-man genre. His world is fully formed and sits at a 45-degree angle to our own. It has its own geography, a lot of spinnies and marshes and wharves, and a cast of indelible characters, notably the relentless pamphleteer Dobson, misadventurer Blodgett, plucky heroine Tiny Enid, and fictional athlete Bobnet Tavol. But the whole of our universe is in there too, viewed through the prism of key logic. The story, I Had a Hammer, is a prime example of one of Key's inimitable motifs. A phrase, a name, or in this case, song lyric, snags his attention, and following that bizarre but strangely irrefutable Key logic, a chain of events will be extracted from it to lead, by startling twists, to a macabre or frightening or pathetic conclusion. The internet is mostly a horrible place, full of porn and Facebook fights and conspiracy theorists, but scattered in the mud are rare gems, such as Frank Key. By buying this book, you'll be doing an invaluable thing. You'll be assisting the gaiety of the universe. As I nestled down for the night in a border chalet, I inspected my hammer and was pleased to see that it was almost as good as new. There were a couple of scuff marks and quite a lot of blood, but otherwise it looked as if it would serve me well for as long as I continued hammering all over as many lands as I descended upon, like an angel of death with my hammer. Well, 
got a hammer. That hammer in the morning. Go for it, folks. Hootingyard.org. Tell him Norm sent you, and Frank will give a mild grunt of acknowledgement. Under his breath, and entirely to himself, from wherever he happens to be at the moment. It's Drabble time. Between my brothers and my sisters, all, all over this land. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, no more, no less. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called Curses Foiled Again by Chris Hugh. Chris is a lawyer and aspiring novelist. She lives in Silicon Valley with her husband and two cats. Her cat, Twitch, was in the I Can Has Cheeseburger Lolcat book, How to Take Over Te World, a lolcat guide to winning. Twitch would like to add that it made the New York Times bestseller list September 2009. Well, meow. Check out Chris's blog at chrishugh.blogspot.com. The strange alien spacecraft rocked and bucked and spilled the strange alien captain under the gray alloy floor. He emitted strange alien expletives as his underlings timidly backed away. Yet again the captain had aimed the death beam at one of the Earth's rural inhabitants, and yet again the shiny reflective lining of the Earthman's traditional headgear aimed it straight back at him. The aliens gave up. Earth could not be conquered. The Earthling waved a triumphant farewell, his baseball cap's aluminum lining catching the sun's rays, the brightness making the aliens wince. Curses, the captain said. Foiled again. Our feature story this week is Primary Pollinator by Nicole Kimberling. Nicole lives in Bellingham, Washington with her partner Dawn, two bad cats, and approximately 100,000 bees. Oh, no, not the bees! Ah! I'm out of my eyes! Ah! Killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey! <laughs> Nicole's the editor of Blind Eye Books, and her novel Turnskin won the Lambda Literary Award for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. This story first appeared in Space Squid Magazine, which rocks the house harder than a passing two-ton mole. Go check them out at spacesquid.com. So without further ado, we bring you Primary Pollinator by Nicole Kimberling. Dr. Lopez came for me, I was plunging the geolab toilet. She carried a red stickle suit in one hand and a spray can of antifungal lubricant in the other. Great news, Oliver. Big spike is in season, Dr. Lopez said. He finally wants to fertilize thick root. My lip curled into an involuntary sneer of disgust and Dr. Lopez's smile twisted downward. Mine was not the reaction she'd hoped for. I was the primary pollinator for the northwestern quadrant of UNSF-controlled Bora. Every six months, the native sentient trees, called Barante, came into flower, and it was my job to ensure that pollen got from one Barante to another without incident. The rest of the time, I mopped floors and plunged toilets in the bio-bubble. 
Before the great outward migration, the Barante were pollinated by the Bora monkey bird. Then the United Nations Space Force imported athlete's foot to Bora, and the monkey bird came to an itchy extinction. Oh, maybe you'd rather not go, Dr. Lopez smirked. I can call your parole officer and tell him you're sick. I'll go. I set the plunger aside. The commander of the first UNSF mission, racked by a guilty and pernicious infection, swore that the Barante species would not perish alongside the monkey bird. Then, like all pioneering dealmakers, he left the actual work to someone else. Human proxies took on the monkey bird's role, ensuring that non-violent offenders like myself, with an interest in science, can find work-release jobs on alien worlds. I'll use the blue stickle suit, I said. Big Spike doesn't like that one. She thrust the red suit at me. He says the spines are too soft. He wants bigger bristles. He says they're more sensation. I took the suit from her wrinkled, chickeny hand. When did he say he'd be blooming? Tonight, so you'll have time to finish that before you go. Dr. Lopez crossed her arms. I don't think I need to tell you how important Big Spike is. You watch your mouth while you're pollen intoxicated. I took some lunch and a land crawler and left the encampment, heading north through the jungle. None of the exobotanists would want to do my job. I'm not so sure they would like Big Spike too much if they had to routinely disperse his pollen. Actually, I'm fairly certain that they'd become suddenly disenchanted with this entire planet if they had to walk around on it, ankle deep in insects, greased up and squished into a rubber suit. Dr. Lopez liked to talk about what the lush, wild power of Bora taught us about our own human nature. And I've learned a lot. I've learned that even on alien planets, everything shits and shit always falls down. And I learned how much I hated Big Spike. I never even tried to hide it. Sometimes I thought he got off on my hatred of him. Other times I thought he just didn't believe me. Big Spike's expanded grove encompassed about five square acres. Hundreds of species of arboreal animals, avians, lizards, even a few primitive mammals sheltered within his big, sprawling arms. His central flowering column was as big as a house, and I could park my land crawler in his pollen chamber. Big Spike was the largest single organism on the planet, and yet he couldn't be satisfied with that. He still needed to strangle my friend Spotty to death in order to grow even more massive. Spotty was a skinny Barante of uncertain lineage. Big Spike thought Spotty was germinated from a seed brought to the Northwestern Quadrant by human saboteurs, or worse yet, washed ashore by a deep oceanic current. Spotty inhabited just a few square yards on the edge of the orange ocean, and Big Spike was determined to squeeze him out. When I complained to Dr. Lopez, she brought up the usual arguments against intervening in alien biological progression. Dr. Lopez didn't like Spotty. She didn't like anything weak except tea. She and Big Spike are two of a kind. They like strong, healthy organisms who outcompete weaker ones. Spotty had no chance against them. We all knew it. Spotty was barely alive, and Big Spike couldn't have been more pleased. I arrived to complete my mission, already suited up in my stickleback gear. 
I didn't really want to talk to Big Spike, so I hadn't turned on my communication headset. I stood in front of his enormous, mottled brown bud, waiting for it to open. Nothing. I reached out and massaged the brilliant green seam of Big Spike's budding pod, mimicking the motion of the extinct monkey bird, licking at the sap. More sap oozed out, but nothing else happened. No flowering. I scowled and turned on the headset. Far so inferior. Even a crippled monkey bird on his last limb could do a better job at arousing me than you could. I'd be better served by importing one of those earth animals. What are they called? Elephants, I think. I'd be better served by importing an elephant and simply training it to ram its head in my bud. Look, Big Spike, do you want to pollinate thick root or not? I asked. Oh, you're finally listening to me. That's a relief. I would feel so violated being entered without any conversation at all. Oh, come on. Like you had any meaningful chats with all those monkey birds, I said. Open up. It's not a voluntary thing, pollen boy. It's a response to pleasure. Come off it. I know you can control it, I said. Oh, did your pathetic little friend Spotty tell you that? Well, he'd just say anything to get a little inner chamber action, wouldn't he? Come on, Oliver, you know what I like. Right at the base of my bud. I shuddered, but crouched down and reached under the bud into the sticky and reeking sap beneath it. I rubbed hard on the slick, cold base and was rewarded with a gushing extrusion of stinking green sap. I had to jump back to avoid Big Spike's bud opening up like a flight hanger door. The five petals folded out, revealing a scalloped dais of variegated red and orange petals. The center of the bloom was a dark, deep, twisting invagination. The smell was unbelievable, fragrant, fruity, like the most exotic and intense wine ever imagined. When monkey birds had been alive, they'd flocked to each blooming, crowding each other out for a chance to drink of the nectar inside. Now it was just me in my stickle suit. I strapped on my backpack, ignited my headlamp, and started crawling through. Yeah, I bet you like the smell of that, Big Spike said as I wriggled through the slick, turgid folds. After about fifty feet, I came to the gymnasium-like space of the pollen chamber. A field of sticky, hairy stamens waved between me and the nectar spouts at the far side. As I stumbled through them, I heard the bud closing behind me. It wouldn't be open again until tomorrow morning, when a genuine involuntary reaction, the sunrise, triggered the bloom. In the meantime, I had ten hours to drink nectar and hang around inside this asshole I despised. So, I got another loop on your friend, Big Spike said. Won't be long now. I frowned. Big Spike was looping his own, stronger roots around Spotty's and cinching them off, depriving Spotty of nutrients and water. Why do you have to do that? I suddenly asked. Well, it's my prerogative as the dominant life form to do whatever pleases me, said Big Spike. We were fortunate to have humans come along. It brought some order to our society. How do you mean? I sat down next to a nectar conduit, stroking it briefly until it started to leak sugary sap. The stuff was mildly hallucinogenic, and so I took it in measured doses to soften the wearing edge of Big Spike's personality. 
Random breeding, fertilization by stupid beasts, those were not effective ways to make sure our society flourished. Take the example of Thick Root. She's a fine old matron, about to seed for the last time. The young one who grows up through her corpse will have every advantage, easily following along her root lines to twine with mine in the great healing web beneath. Shouldn't you call it the great pruning noose beneath? A place of love, a place of battle. The world beneath is mysterious and strange, fearful and intoxicating. It is almost my world now. My roots stretch on for miles. I rolled my eyes. I didn't want to listen to Big Spike rhapsodizing about his encompassing roots anymore. He really loved talking about his roots. So, you like the fact that breeding isn't left up to chance anymore? Why should it be? I don't know, genetic diversity or something? I said, shrugging. You probably don't care about that. No, I don't. I care only that my roots touch those of my own lineage. No strangers, all family. All comfortable, all safe. So, are you ready for it? I asked. I got out the initiation buzzer. Already? Big Spike asked. We hardly talked at all. If you don't want it. I buzzed the initiator a couple of times. I do. Big Spike said. Hit me. I rammed the buzzer into the area above the sap nozzle. Because of Big Spike's many pollinations, the flesh was scarred and it took a couple of times to trigger the pollen release. Finally, an engulfing blast shot out from the string of pores lining the chamber. As usual, I didn't struggle against it. I just sucked it in. It hit me like a wave of THC kicking in after a huge hit of pot. I grinned, chuckled a little bit, scooped up a handful of nectar and casually licked it off my fingers. Big Spike kept talking, but somehow I couldn't pay attention to him anymore. I had to spend the night here, so I just lay down, leaning against the thick, grassy stamens, and snoozed while Big Spike went on and on. In the morning, I emerged, looking like I'd been the victim of a baby powder factory explosion. As soon as I heard the creak of Big Spike's blossom opening, I rushed out, not wanting to get caught inside. Having released its pollen, the male blossom was already showing signs of decay. Doubtless, Big Spike had a female blossom hidden somewhere high in his canopy. He'd never been pollinated, though. He didn't want to waste any of his energy producing seeds while he was still a young and virile plant. He preferred decrepit old plants make seeds for him. Big Spike was just that kind of grove. I got out of the blossom and into my pollen retention coveralls, a clear plastic footed jumpsuit that went over the stickle suit to preserve as much pollen as possible while en route to Thick Root. And don't forget to give Thick Root my very best, Big Spike said. I took off the headset without answering him. As I made my way down to the land crawler, I passed Spotty. He was looking worse than ever, sickly and dilapidated. His roots protruded, exposed at the edge of the cliff. He'd clearly been trying to move them away from Big Spike, but found nothing but open air. Nevertheless, Spotty still produced a blossom at colossal metabolic expense. I put the headset back on and tuned it to Spotty's frequency. He was already greeting me. Oliver, hello, Oliver, Spotty said. It was his custom to simply repeat a greeting word over and over until I got a headset on. Hi, Spotty, I said. That's a nice male bud you have. You're just saying that, Spotty said. 
You should reabsorb it, though, I chided. You don't have enough resources to lose. I know, but I'm going to die anyway. I just wanted to make a flower once. It was fun. Spotty's bud trembled slightly. I was hoping you'd come by so I could show you. I stood there, looking at Spotty's sealed bud, thinking about how really unfair life was to Spotty, to the Bora monkey bird, the sockeye salmon, and the rest of the outcompeted organisms of the universe. Spotty, I said, do you want to bloom? Bloom? Spotty sounded nervous. I've never bloomed. But do you want to? Uh, sure. Wait right here. I raced back to the land crawler, pulling off the pollen-laden stickle suit as I went, suddenly repulsed by the notion of ferrying Big Spike's genetic material around the continent. I sprayed off the remaining pollen and put on the spare suit. I really didn't know if I'd be able to make it into Spotty's pollen chamber, but I had to at least try. I returned with the initiator. Since Spotty had no visual sense, he didn't know I'd changed. I buzzed the initiator once, near the ground. What was that? It's a tool that stimulates the vibrations made by a crooning monkey bird. I'll use it inside the chamber to trigger a pollen release. You're going into my chamber? Spotty sounded a little surprised and shy. If I can fit in there, I will. I knelt down. Now first I reach down here to the bait nectar near the base of your blossom. The moment my hand touched the sensitive nub, Spotty's blossom sprang open. The scent was less sweet than Big Spike's, but thick with perfume. The petals were beautiful, violets with white and yellow spots. I told Spotty this. I I'm glad you like it. Spotty sounded embarrassed. Is it big enough? I eyed the chute leading down into the pollen chamber. It would be a squeeze, and once I was inside, there would be barely enough room to turn around, but I could make it. Absolutely, I said. May I? Sure, Spotty said. Make yourself comfortable. I pulled myself down the chute and slid in a half crouch into the pollen chamber. Compared to Big Spike's, Spotty's chamber was almost womb-like. Only three pollen pores studded the wall. I couldn't even lift the initiator, there was no space. So I buzzed it near the wall and was rewarded with a massive spray of sticky pollen, instantly intoxicating in its potency. Is it okay? Spotty asked. I spent a couple of moments finding my tongue and then trying to remember what to do with it. Spotty started to worry. Is it bad? Did it get in your eyes? Barante didn't have eyes, but once I had explained that mine couldn't grow back if damaged, Spotty worried constantly about the vulnerability of mine. Uh, my eyes are okay, I mumbled. Colors leapt wildly up around my head. I smelled the sweet, unmistakable, delicious secretion of nectar. I admit I degenerated a little at this point and started just licking it off the wall. I skated the edge of incoherence and ecstatic delirium. Is the nectar okay? Spotty asked. It's fantastic, I mumbled, my face sticky with the stuff. The best I've ever tasted. Wow, Spotty said. That says a lot. It does. I fell back, too intoxicated to move much more, floating in and out of a nectar haze. I remember Spotty talking to me all night, but I can't remember at all what he said. I wish I could now. In the morning, when Spotty's bud opened up, I crawled out and said goodbye. 
Thanks a lot, Spotty said, sheepishly. I really appreciate it. You make it sound like it was all just pity, I said. Well, Spotty trailed off. Hey, I did it because I wanted to, I said. And your nectar was the best I've ever had. I mean it. You should bottle it up and make a fortune. I don't even have a headache. You mean it? I do, I said. It took three days to reach Thickroot, who was too senile to really notice who I was, let alone speak with me. She seemed to think I was a monkey bird. I delivered Spotty's pollen and left. By the time I got back to Spotty, he was too dehydrated to speak and lost consciousness a week later. It took him six weeks to die of thirst, strangled out of his water supply by Big Spike. Thick root collapsed a few weeks after that into a decaying heap of fungus and insect-ridden deadwood. But in her inner chamber, she made a seed that has already taken root. I watch it closely. Someday, Big Spike may find out what I did, and if that day comes, I'll return to the capricious affectations of some felon named Helmet. But in the meantime, I'll be watering that little sapling. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, they run this kind of stuff all the time in Space Squid, folks. It's no surprise that Matthew Bay is co-editor over there as well as Drabblecast. Check them out at spacesquid.com. So, to recap the big question raised in this story, what have the lush, wild power of Bora taught us about our own human nature? That the rich love talking about their roots, all family, all comfortable and safe, no strangers? That it's the prerogative of the dominant life form to do whatever it pleases? That monkey birds should wear flip-flops in the shower more often? And maybe it's also that competition is a natural, necessary, meaningful, and inevitable thing. And maybe also that sometimes it's not. The world beneath is fearful and intoxicating, a place of love and a place of battle. Welcome to Wall Street, right? Hell, welcome to capitalism and free market economies. The great pruning noose. Depends on who you ask. The largest organisms on the planet can't seem to ever be satisfied. Look at Oprah. If you happen to have your headsets on this week, you might have heard cheers and joyous applause from the wealthiest two-tenths of one percent of the people in the United States, who just found out they don't have to pay a state tax when they croak, giving the young ones that grow inside their corpses every advantage in having their root lines twine with the great healing web underneath, and then also giving them a couple mil on top of that, just in case, you know, that whole massive subterranean root system thing doesn't pan out. Meanwhile, I'm having to pay all this social security tax when obviously I'm going to die fighting a mountain lion before I turn 62. Tell me what kind of sense that makes. Ah well, at least I don't have to inseminate Oprah. So hey, nobody here is going to ask you to suit up in latex and ram your buzzers into our sap nozzle, but if you enjoyed this week's story, I would ask you to consider making a donation to us to help keep going on a regular weekly basis. We pay authors for their stories and voice actors for their storytelling. We license production music. We rent space on the web, purchase and maintain good recording equipment and editing software, produce and distribute marketing materials, and donate annually to the Adopted Deathworm Foundation of Mongolia, which provides school books, clean clothes, and live cattle for needy Elgwai Kwakwai. 
We just got a letter from Heather, the young worm that we sponsor, thanking us for the reindeer sweater and wishing us merriment in our clamor of various and sundry Western rituals. My point, of course, aside from noting in a rather immodest and conspicuously smug fashion our charitable activities, was that we need your support to keep on keeping on. We've got a $5 a month automatic subscription option, a $10 a month automatic subscription option if you really want to help give us a better scope for the long term, or a donate once in any amount option if you just want to give us a few bucks or a few thousand bucks to say thanks. Head over to drabblecast.org. We really do appreciate the support of all our awesome listeners. All right, so in addition to Drabbles, 100-word stories, of course, we're keen on even smaller bits of fiction that we call Twabbles. That's Twitter-sized 100-character stories, exactly 100 characters. Spaces not included, title optional, also not included. Week to week, we run an ongoing contest out of our discussion forums where listeners such as yourself submit 100-character stories in the TwitFix section. We pick a winner each week, and we tweet it out on Twitter before the show comes out. Open to anyone and everyone, join our discussion forums off Drabblecast.org and follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. This week's winner, another first-timer, Sergeant Crispy, with this great little twabble. The angry mob rolled up the hill with pitches and torches. Somebody had to pay for what happened to poor Jack and Jill. Payback's a bitch. I like the idea of rolling up a hill. It makes me think that suddenly we're dealing with some sort of eldritch and unfathomable alien geometry here. That things aren't quite what they seem, and in fact, they never have been. But just like Jack and Jill, we've always just assumed that hill to be ordinary. We've always just assumed because that's what we do when we climb hills or watch birds at dusk, when we hear the wind blow against the window at night, or pass dark faces on the street. We assume, but it's only until you've descended all the way up to the very top that you look around and finally realize this is no ordinary hill. You're no closer to a hill than a hill is to hell. Worlds apart, but also very similar. Hell and hill. Only he and I that separate the two. He and I that are different. Yet, like he, I fall down, down to my knees, the pail of water slipping from my grasp, the water hissing as it turns to steam on the burning earth. Like he, I break my crown, the window of my mind shattering forever, shards of sanity scattering in the dark. Like he, I fall away from these mountains of madness, a fractured shell of a man as a sunken wretch with no name comes tumbling after, muttering to herself about birds at dusk and dark faces on the street. Yeah, that's, that's what it makes me think of. Anyways, that's our show. Remember, it's produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks this week's awesome episode artist, Bill Halliar. Bill is a professional artist and drabble dabbler who toils deep in the pixel mines of ancient specter-haunted Chicago. He works on video games during the day and comics at night. Consequently, he is as pale and luminous as a blind cavefish, but not as sociable. You can visit him and see his work at www.roughbeasts.com, like that name. 
We'll see you next week, weirdos. Christmas special. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, an elephant ramming its head into your bud, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that everything shits, and shit always falls down. This place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all splurred when slow In the dark corner table